famous scene in the Raiders of the Lost Ark where, where one of the villains uh, catches up with Indiana Jones in the street uh, and starts very menacingly swinging his sword around to display his, his skills uh, of, of threatening uh, swordsmanship. Now, in this case, though, with a smirk on his face, Indiana Jones simply pulls out his gun and shoots the threatening enemy. Uh, the swordsman had been seriously confident in his ability and power, so much so that he believed displaying it would make the hero deflate and cower before him. But the reality was that he had no idea what sort of power he opposed. And while audiences defaulted into fear for our hero very quickly, indeed we had no reason for that. And the point, of course, is that evil often overestimates its ability. Because it rests its confidence in its own strength, and they forget that there are powers that are not obvious, but often stand behind the righteous. Psalm 2 shows that ultimately the one whom God supports will be the victor. It matters not how many schemes his opponents devise. God is the king over the universe and will bring victory to his anointed one. And this psalm then is about the coronation, the coronation of God's victorious king. God brings forth his royal representative who will take care of, lead, and defend his people. And the main question in this psalm seems to be, who actually rules the world? Is it God or is it the nations that are in charge of the events of history and the affairs of creation? And Psalm 2 says that a king will be sent forth from God as God's son who will claim the nations as his own. So our main point then is that God's son is the king who comes forth to make the nations his own. God's son is the king who comes forth to make the nations his own. So our first point as we consider this is the situation. What's going on in this psalm? Let's get a handle on the situation. Now the structure of a psalm always helps us to understand the overall purpose for which God inspired this particular uh, portion of scripture. So Psalm 2 has, has four parts, uh, but they're very simple. So, so there's a problem. There's two responses. And then an outcome. A problem, two responses, and an outcome. Now in this point, we just want to look at the problem, the situation, right, in which God's people find themselves in Psalm 2. So, let's turn our attention to verses 1, 2, 3. 1 through 3. Uh, verses 1 to 3 Describe the situation that Psalm 2 is, is addressing. 
And in this case, the problem is that the nations, especially their rulers, have plotted against the Lord and his anointed. The point is very clear that the nations are raging, the the peoples are plotting, the rulers are conniving together, but all of it is directed against God and his chosen one. And as verse 3 indicates, their plot is about rebellion against the Lord and his anointed, which is a, a, a central uh, crucial point as the psalm develops. There's no indication here of, of specifics. Is this a, a particular plot against God and his anointed? There, it doesn't seem to be uh, about one particular plan. Rather, this appears to be a comment on the general stance of the world outside God's people. The nations are always raging. Their rulers are always plotting against God and his anointed. But the situation is slightly more complex than simply that. Because the psalmist, as we pick up the tone, even of that opening question, and especially as the psalm develops, the psalmist does not seem worried about these threats. His opening question, why do the nations rage? does not come across so much concerned as confused. Why would they do this? We could read this, I suppose, as, as an outcry of fear. Why, God, are you letting the nations rage against us? But that doesn't really seem to fit the tone of the psalm. There used to be a, a game show called... American Gladiators, where amateur, it's, yeah, none of you would enjoy it. It's very American. Uh, where amateur athletes would come and compete in ridiculous tests of strength against the professional gladiators. Uh, now, the usual contestants had some sort of athletic ability to, to keep up, uh, even if they usually you know, were devastated by the gladiators uh, in their competitions. But if we were to imagine that I was competing, uh, the audience would watch in terror about how badly they knew I would be destroyed, right? And the psalmist looks at the nations more like that, asking, why are they even trying? Now, throughout... Israel's history, they could have asked this question in the concerned rather than the confused sense, certainly. On numerous occasions, the world loomed large against God's little nation, and certainly Israel on its own strength would have been destroyed. Certainly some psalms, some psalms do teach us how to pray when we are afraid and when things are overwhelming. But Psalm 2 is not exactly one of them in that sense. This psalm reminds God's people that we are supposed to lift our heads above 
the horizon of what appears to be the case by human standards and trust God's promises with confidence. And I suppose in that respect, it does teach us how to pray when we are afraid. Despite our fear, we pray with confidence in what God has promised to do. Now, the situation is clear then that the nations are forming wicked plans against God and his people, particularly the anointed one. That's simple enough. But before we move on from that, I I think I should highlight something specific for us. One of the frequently sounded notes that I hear, at least in the church today, is worry about what the world is doing. And Psalm 2 prompts us to consider our hearts as we look at the surrounding world. Truly, yes, the world is doing some things that could be concerning. And in one sense, perhaps should be. But clearly, the the psalmist was surrounded by situations that could be concerning as well. The nations are raging and plotting against him. But he wasn't concerned. He was confused that the nations would even try. And so, in our time, as so many people indeed are worried... We are pulled directly into this psalm's mindset and context. Here and now, we are reminded that God summons us to consider troubled horizons from two perspectives. One, yes, that we pray realistically for help in dire times. But also... That we would know that God is with us and has made promises to his people. The nations plot in vain to overcome God's people. And so in reality, the situation is that they are mere sparrows pecking at an army tank. And how that comes to be the case is what we consider in our next point. The king. So the king is indeed God's response to this situation. So the reason that the psalmist was confused by the nation's attempts to to plot against God is spelled out in, in two responses to this situation, which verses 4 to 9 describe for us. Okay, so that's where our attention is. Uh, in this second point here about the king. The, the, the point to establish before moving into the, the ideas of the text, though, is that with a parallel between how Israel faced uh, threats from the world and now the church faces plots from the world, the two responses recorded in this psalm have supreme relevance for us like they did for the original reader. So the first response here, uh, verses uh, 4 to to 6, 
is God's response. And God's reaction to the nation underscores the psalmist's confusion about why the nations are plotting. God laughs at them. The tumults of the world can, from our perspective, seem overwhelming and frightening. But when considered from a heavenly viewpoint, we remember how God holds the hearts of kings in his hands. He directs the world's affairs. And when the wicked think that they have found a way to outwit him and overcome his people, God reveals his sense of humor. Like we find it funny to watch a pet dog paw at the cabinet that we know he will never get open. So too, God looks upon the feeble efforts to overcome his people and laughs at the futility of wicked nations in their plots. But God does not laugh without reason. He knows well and truly why the nation's efforts are silly and worth his laughter. Indeed, we see God's reason in verse 6, 5 and 6. God in his wrath against the nations, verse 5, has set his king upon Mount Zion. And now we can connect God's establishment of the king into the wider story of the Bible. Right? We read 2 Samuel 7, and there God promised that to David that David's heir would always reign. And further, God would have a father-son relationship with this Davidic king. And so the the king's response so so verses four to six are God's response, and then the king speaks his response in verses seven to nine, which records what God said to the king in keeping those very promises that he made to David. Indeed, this this king comes forth. As God's son. And owns the nations as his inheritance. And now since the king himself is telling these words that God said to him. We know that when he says today I have begotten you. is not about when he was born. Rather this refers to the king's coronation. In 2 Samuel eleven fourteen. God promised David about his heir. I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. And so Psalm 2 records God's declaration that the Davidic king, David's heir, is indeed God's son. But in in God's plan, he knew that it was most fitting that the king whom he would install as his royal son would indeed be his true and natural son, the second person of the Trinity. After all, the the Hebrew word in verse 2 translated as the Lord's anointed, the Hebrew is simply Messiah, 
right? Which comes to us in the New Testament Greek as Christ. The Messiah in Psalm 2 is God's Son. And so, uh, some text printed on your, on your order of service there, if you, you may want to turn to those. So, so in Romans 1, 3 to 4, um, Paul says that the gospel concerns his God's son, who, note, descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, the crowned king. By his resurrection, according to the Spirit, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. As Christ burst forth from the grave and announced he is truly God's false son. Now in power. To reign as David's heir. Unsurprisingly, I hope to all of you, God's promise to David is fulfilled. In Jesus Christ. And the point's confirmed. Right? In Hebrews 5, 5 and 6, which quotes Psalm 2, 7. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we get to deal with something very exciting here. I think very exciting. Uh, Maybe you noticed that Hebrews here, that we just read, quotes Psalm 2, uh, that Christ was appointed as our high priest. But I have said that this is about Christ as our king. So how do we deal with that? I don't think it's a problem at all, this priestly connection. Zechariah 6, 12 and 13, which you can read off your uh, order of service there, tells us that the branch, right, the coming Messiah, will have the royal honor of the Lord's temple throne. The Messiah will sit on the Lord's throne in the temple. But a priest will also sit... On the Lord's throne in the temple. In Christ, we see the king and the priest come together. As God's son fulfills Psalm 2 and Zechariah 6. By acting as our king and as our priest. So in sum, right? We've got these responses. God laughs at the nations and their plots because he has a king to defend his people. And that king is his own eternal son, mighty God himself, ready to step into history and bear his people's sin as their priest, but destroy their enemies as their king. The king is the reason that God and his people should never flinch at the world's plans for wickedness. Which then brings us to our final point. Our hope. Our hope. The first point uh, said that the psalmist was confused. 
that the nations would so vainly make plans against God and his king. And then we saw the reason the nation's plans are vain is because God, the son, is king over God's people. And, and so now I want, I want to circle back to that first issue about how the, the nations do plot against God's people. And there's a very simple question, right? Christian, have you been recently, are you right now, afraid? Are you worried about what the world is planning in these moments? I hear a lot about how things may get very bad for Christians. And I have no doubt that you hear that as well. Are there, are there reasons that we should be aware and put effort into protecting our rights? Yes, certainly. Should we do that in fear? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The world may indeed raise its heads with plots about how to spread wickedness and very specific things and murdering the unborn, condoning every, and endorsing every form of sexual immorality and telling us to shut up in the process. But it does not matter how things appear as the world ferments its wickedness. God laughs at them. Because he knows what his king can do. In disregard for appearances, right? Our king started on the throne of a manger. An animal's feeding trough. And he moved to the throne of a cross crowned with thorns. In all outward appearance, He was not a threat to the world, but God's opinion was otherwise. At the cross, God's king has thrown down sin, death, the devil, powers and principalities. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. It would be easy right now to shift the emphasis right onto the cross. Certainly, we always need to remember the truth that Christ died to satisfy God's justice regarding the death penalty owed to us for our sin. As rebels against God, we should be executed and suffer his wrath for eternity. And Christ died to bear that curse for sin in our place. It'd be easy to emphasize that for the rest of our time together. And yet, perhaps, Christmas sermons, sort of like this one, often emphasize that the Son was born to die for us, and perhaps neglect to emphasize that the Son was born to be King for us. Now, these points in themselves are are certainly not in competition. 
They go together. They go right together. But Psalm 2 reminds us that Christ came to reign for us. In verse 9, the king will bash his opponents to pieces. In verses 10 to 12, God warns the nations to take heed and listen to his king, lest God's wrath blaze again. It says kindled. We've toned it down. Blaze against them. The nation's actions in plotting against the sun are foolish. As the psalmist thought, because they are stirring up divine vengeance for themselves. And perhaps this year, then, we ought to highlight Christ's kingship. Right? Perhaps especially this year, which has felt overwhelming, which has felt like a season of immense loss and disappointment, which indeed has been very difficult for so many around the world in general, but God's people in particular, as we especially have not been able to be together as we ought. We've suffered the burden of separation as well as so many others. And so in the midst of that, perhaps this year is a time especially to emphasize Christ's kingship, his victory as the son who was born to be king, our king. Indeed, the good king who reigns for us. Right? It is wonderful news. Is it not? And so our catechism says Christ executes his office as king by subduing us to himself, making us Christian, bringing us to faith, ruling and defending. Uh, Do you hear that? We get the first one. I don't know that we always get these other two ruling and defending us and conquering all. If you got a copy of the catechism, underline that word, all. Conquering all of his and our enemies. We hear often... Every year, I think, about the war on Christmas. Christian, you know what? I, I would take heart. The world didn't start the war after all. Christ did. He came, right? It wasn't Just to be there. He came to be the reigning, conquering king. The one who dashes his enemies to pieces. We do well to remember Christ's war on the world more than we think about the world's war on Christmas. And we do well more so 
to remember also that Christ wages war through the power of the Spirit. Right? He dashes his enemies not by breaking their bodies, but indeed by breaking their hearts through the preaching of the gospel. He has a people whom he came to save and nothing will stand in his way. As Psalm 2 promised, the nations as the inheritance for God's king. So the gospel is making people from every tribe, tongue, and nation into citizens of the kingdom of Christ. And so as, as we look and consider the world outside, be encouraged. Take heart, Christian. The king is on your side. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let that resonate. Blessed are all who take refuge in this king. God has appointed his son to rule his people on earth, to conquer our enemies, even death itself by swallowing its sting in his resurrection. And the arrival of our king is a joyous thing. It means indeed, with the psalmist, that we have no reason to fear and every reason to hope. Let's pray. Father God, it is a challenging time of world history, uh, but in so many ways is it not always a challenging time of world history. This, this psalm tells us that the nations rage, and that is true across the ages. They have always done so and always will. And yet, God, you laugh. Because you have a king. Your own son. Whom you sent to rule your people in grace. To overcome our sin. To subdue us to you in faith. As we take hold of this Savior for our rescue. And you have sent him to rule and defend us. And to conquer his and our enemies. So, God, despite what may be happening in the world. Set aside our fear for us. Help us in this. Fill us with hope. Help us not to dread, but to delight in the future. Knowing that it is full of what you will do by the power of the Spirit to bring glory to Christ and to bring people to salvation through the gospel. And we do indeed pray that you would make use 
of your hope-filled people in that task. We pray that this would be a message that fills our hearts in the days ahead, especially when we have more conversations with our friends, family, neighbors that might easily gravitate towards what are the world, what is the world thinking about as they put up a tree, as they put up this and that decoration? Why? Because God's King has come. He has brought joy to the world. And He is enthroned by His resurrection as the Son of God in power. Help us even as we take these copies of Mark's Gospel that we might distribute them in hopes that we might say to people that very thing. This is a book about the King. This is a book about the King who reigns. This this is a book about the King who is also the Good Shepherd who reigns in grace for His people. And we pray that You would use that. You, indeed, rule the world through Christ. And so you can bring that to pass. And we ask that you would. Not because we feel burdened, at least in the demanding sense, but because we are delighted, because we are filled with joy at the coming of our King. And so we pray in that King's name, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.